Okay, so here we are, September uh, 2019. My name is Mike Sondoma. I'm the program director at Sports Medicine Concepts, and I am also the host of Skull Sessions, Sports Medicine Concepts, Sports Emergency Care podcast, uh, of which this is our first uh, edition. And Morgan, uh, remind me, but I, I believe if we think back a little bit, it was about two years ago that we conceived of this idea uh, of... Uh, about a year and a half ago that we conceived the idea of Skull Sessions as a platform that we could use to bring uh, on point and pertinent sports emergency care information to uh, practicing medical professionals as well as students uh, and maybe produce some ancillary content that could help uh, clinical educators as well along the way. So uh, about a year and a half ago, but it took what maybe the last six months just to get all the cameras right, get the technology right, get the lighting correct, uh, work out the format that we wanted to, to produce Skull Sessions in, and really basically get all our ducks in a row before, uh, before we were here today. Uh, and part of that uh, technology was getting, um, getting a topic ready. And I thought it would be pretty interesting to start right off with uh, a series, actually, where we look at the current state of modern football helmets and in doing so, we created a series of segments where we would have uh, football helmet manufacturers come in and provide us a little bit of insight into their helmet technologies and how that helmet technology actually helps uh, prevent uh, injuries. And what better way to start that off than to have the leading, uh, our country's leading helmet manufacturer, Riddell, here uh, to help us do that. So uh, I have with me today Thad Eide, who is Senior Vice President of research and product development. Uh, Thad, thank you for being a, a part of the Skull Sessions podcast and, and helping us launch this series. And I, I have to say, um, you and I have known each other for, for quite some time. Uh, we've run around the same circles, uh, seen each other, but we've also, we've always seen each other at trade shows, exhibits, uh, out at the NFL Combine at the PFATS winter meeting. So it's a little strange, I have to say, to have you here in our little studio uh, in Livonia, New York, and sitting across from you. It's, uh, I have to say I was a little nervous leading up to this, but I, it's a real honor to have you uh, and Riddell here to help us launch Skull Sessions. Well, it's my first time in Livonia, New York, and I, I don't find it to be that strange because we've known each other for a number of years. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a pleasure to be here, and it's, it's also an honor for Riddell to be, especially on the inaugural uh, inaugural Skull Sessions podcast. Yeah, I, I think it's going it, to, it might just be very hard to follow up on this one. Let's, let's hope that that's how this turns out. Right? Yeah, let's hope. Yeah. Um, so look, um, I kind of want to get right to it because there's a, a, a lot of things that um, I think we could talk about today. Uh, and I'm, I'm very excited to bring a lot of your um, expertise and a lot of your um, insight across on, on some of these topics that we had um, looked at. Um, but it's, the first thing I wanted to kind of get at was it's, it's always been my understanding. You can obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it's always been my understanding that football helmets were initially conceived uh, in their leather format, if you will, to protect players against lacerations and fractures, uh, skull fractures in particular. Um, and then shortly thereafter or sometime after that, uh, Riddell invents the first plastic uh, helmet or plastic shell. And it's my understanding that that plastic shell was conceived to, tell, to help take a direct blow and make that a glancing blow, thereby further protecting 
the athlete from injury. But if you read some of those histor- historical accounts, uh, very few of them, early, those very, very early historical accounts ever mention concussion or head injury per se, as I think we think about it today. Um, but now with the way I think society is starting to think about concussion and head injury and those types of things, I'm, I'm wondering if that historical account is being rewritten. And now we're starting to look more at helmets as being a, a, uh, a piece of equipment that protects against concussion when maybe it wasn't initially conceived uh, as such. So could you give us a little historical perspective on the development of the football helmet and also what uh, Riddell's role in that evolution has been? Sure. Um, you know, like, as you said, uh, John Riddell invented the plastic football helmet along with the web suspension system that players used for, for decades uh, after its introduction in 1939. Um, the web suspension system was actually used by the U.S. military until the 1990s. Uh, you know, John Riddell's web suspension system was in combat helmets for, for a period number of decades. You know, there were hundreds of millions of them made. Um, but, you know, you're right when you say that helmets were, were first built to um, deflect focal injuries, you know, things that would cause contusions and lacerations and skull fractures in, in, at the worst case. Um, but helmets have evolved over the years, too. I mean, they, there have been updates. There have been standards written for how helmets should perform. Uh, the NOXIE standard, the National Operating Committee uh, on Standards for Athletic equipment uh, first published their standard in 1973. Um, Riddell uh, was the first manufacturer to meet that standard with the Pac-3 football helmet at that time. Um, And helmets have continued to evolve over the years, football helmets especially. Um, I I think of the first modern football helmet, and Riddell kind of thinks of it that way, as the Riddell Revolution. It was launched in 2002, and it was a helmet that actually made use of on-field impact research that was done, that was sponsored by the NFL at the time, um, looking at the types of impacts that uh, players saw on the field when one player or another was diagnosed with a concussion. And Riddell used that information and kind of had an aha moment at the time um, where we realized that a number of the players or the majority of the players in in the reconstructions that were done in in the laboratory were struck in the side of the head and face. And we saw that as an opportunity to improve the impact response of our helmets in those areas, Um, you know, with the intent of potentially reducing the risk of concussion to the player. Um, You know, traditional helmets at the time tended to have very uh, soft fitting materials in the jaw and the side of the face. Um, we extended the mandible area on the, uh, on the, in the jaw area for the Revolution football helmet, put better energy managing material in that area to reduce the forces of impact when players were struck in the side of the head and face. And I think, uh, you know, that's been a very successful design and it's been used in, you know, all of our helmet designs since then. And, and many of our competitors have adopted that design, those types of designs as well. Uh, that's interesting. You, you brought up, um, the area, the, the temporal region being associated with 
uh, was, was it you said that that's the most common area to receive a blow or uh, that resulted in in concussion? Well, in, yeah, in in the reconstructions of on-field events that yeah. were done at that time, um, like seventy percent of the impacts that led to a concussion diagnosis in one player or another was from an impact to the side of the head or face. Is that uh, is, is recent? Is more recent research showing that same thing? Is it still the temporal region that that takes? that results in that well i th- yeah i mean i i think that's an area of of high risk when a player yeah. is struck there and i think that's pretty well recognized um i don't know if the number is still 70 percent. that was just associated with that particular study yeah. but i think it did point us in a direction that led to you know a revolution the modern football right because i remember that being a component of the of the revolution and bringing that temporal region down or temporal component of the helmet i, re- I do remember that being uh, a rationale for that design, but I, I haven't heard much about the temporal region, and uh, I haven't heard much statistics on that since then. So I was just, w- when you mentioned that, it just made me realize that I hadn't heard anything about that in a while. So, um, but getting back to to the historical perspective of helmets, um, I, I wonder if you go back, if if you accept my premise that maybe the historical accounts. From let's let's say uh, pre-revolution football helmet. All right? mm-hmm. So if we re- if we re- read those historical c- accounts prior to the modern revolution of, of football helmets, uh, my argument is that you don't see to- you don't see um, conversation about concussion so much in that as you do more recently. Okay, concussion is um, a more recent term used in modern football helmet technology conversation. Um, so if you accept that premise, I, I wonder if there are unreasonable expectations about the technology that can be built into either the technology that we have now or the technology that we might see in the future. I mean, are, are we starting to equate concussion protection and helmet design so closely that the expectation in society at large is that eventually we're going to have a helmet that an athlete can just strap on and not ever get a concussion? Well, I think we, we should do our best to debunk that right here. I, I, I don't think you're going to see a concussion-proof helmet anytime soon. There are no technologies, to my knowledge, that are uh, you know, a- anywhere close that are going to create that. Um, you know, so people should should temper their expectations around that. I mean, there are a lot of things that modern football helmets do uh, to reduce forces of impact that you know maybe historical helmets didn't do uh, that can better protect the athlete. Um, but you know, the, there are no concussion-proof helmets. There are no concussion-proof Riddell helmets. Right. And I I think that is is a very important point to bring up and and to make sure that. Um, society at large, if you will, or the general populace comes to understand is that uh, there is no, no one is, no rational individual anyway is professing a concussion helmet. And I think you would be uh, remiss in in doing that. And I I think there are, especially parents, sometimes parents, uh, maybe even coaches, sometimes think that there are helmets that are so much better than other ones that they're looking for that concussion helmet. So I, I think it's really important that we make that point. Oh, as do I. And that's not to say that, 
you know, we at Riddell and, you know, other, other helmet companies aren't getting up every day trying to make their helmets better to better protect athletes. I mean, we do. That's what we do. Riddell is in the business of protecting athletes. Uh, so I have a team of engineers, um, a team of designers, a team of technicians that get up every single day, and that's all they do is develop helmet technology to better protect athletes. All right. Well, um, so let, let's play off of that a little bit, that, that idea of a concussion helmet. And I, I want to uh, move on to, to talk uh, about the NFL study that ranks football helmets. Um, and I have that up here. We can bring that up and we can take a look at that. And I'm just going to use the, the, this chart um, that, that has been circulated around. And, and I'm just going to focus in on the top performing. There, there's a number of different categories. Uh, we're going to look at the top performing group. Because as it relates to our argument about or, or our um, desire to debunk the idea of the concussion helmet, um, we have uh, a number of helmets here that all fall in the top performing group. Um, I'm curious about the experimental design that was used in creating this list. Uh, because some might suggest that if you are the helmet in the, that is on the top of the list, that that helmet then represents, any, today anyway, today's concussion helmet or today's helmet that is best. Um, and I'm wondering about the experimental design specifically. I'm wondering, is there a statistical difference between any of the helmets in the top performing group? In other words, you know, the number one helmet may have got uh, some sort of a raw score that the number is higher than other helmets on the list. But I'm wondering, is there a statistical difference between protection uh, between the number one helmet and the number four helmet, the number three helmet, the number five helmet. Uh, what do you know about the experimental design in, 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 in that list? Well, I'm not aware that there's any statistical difference between these helmets that are, that are ranked in what we'd call the green or at the top of the NFL rankings. Um, the, the test protocol and the methodology that went into these rankings is actually quite sophisticated and it's and it's evolving all the time but it is focused on NFL players and I think that's something to get across to people like I think if you scroll down the poster there's a disclaimer at the bottom that says that you know th this is for you know these it says laboratory test yeah, conditions yeah. were intended to represent potentially concussive head impacts in the NFL right. and the results should not be extrapolated to college high school or youth football and you know that's, that's almost word for word yeah, by the way that's that's <laughs> very that's very true of of this because it's it was constructed um, to represent the types of impacts and playing conditions that were seen by NFL football players which are you know certainly cannot be extrapolated to younger levels of play uh Okay, so you, you made um, a comment earlier in a conversation um, uh, with, with respect to uh, categorizing or ranking, ranking was the term you used, mm -hmm. ranking football helmets, and that there are a number of organizations that have various strategies or various um, systems in place to rank uh, helmets. Um, and then we talked a little bit about the NOXIE standard. And we talked about how in order to get a helmet even onto the playing field, if you will, even to get it in the realm where it could be ranked by some of these other organizations, that it has to pass Nazi standards. And it, it's always been my, uh, recently anyway, I, I think Nazi has come under fire for their, for their traditional drop test. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, 
how do these ranking systems compare to the NOXI standard? And is the NOXI standard something that we should still be looking at or, or should NOXI standards be changed? Well, I think the NOXI standard is the NOXI standard is a rigorous test of football helmets. I mean, it's not trivial to pass the NOXI standard. I mean, people talk about it as if, well, you know, all helmets meet the NOXI standard. Well, of course they do. In order to offer a helmet to. for sale, they you have, have to. to meet the NOXI standard. But believe me, everybody everybody works through iterations of their helmets that are in development that don't meet the standard until they get to one, one that comfortably meets the standard that they're happy with. Um, but meeting the Noxie standard is sort of your, you know, your ante to get in the game. Uh, you know, you have to do that in order to even be rated by the by Virginia Tech or ranked by the NFL. So, so the Noxie standard isn't an antiquated standard that that needs or that hasn't been updated recently. Oh, oh the Noxie standard's been updated probably 30 times in the last 15 or 20 years, you know, each time making it more rigorous. Um, Noxie actually recently added a, uh, a linear impact or pneumatic RAM test method that kind of goes beyond the traditional drop test and, and added a, a rotational component uh, to the standard. So it, it, you know, it added a whole new aspect to the standard. Yeah, we, we might, um, might suggest that um somehow Noxie make that a little bit uh, more widely known because I, I think, uh, you know, un unless you're specifically looking at Noxie press releases and stuff, I don't know as though you would know that because I, I think the general consensus is that uh, Noxie standards are so, don't truly represent uh, what helmet testing should look like. And I think that's because most people think that they're still using a single drop test. Yeah, I if that's not the case, they should probably you know, make it a little more widely known. They could probably publicize it a little bit better, um, you know, but, uh, you know, Noxie has done a lot of good things over the years, and they continue to. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the the rigor of the Noxie standard is pretty well established. And look, I mean, look at, look at injuries in high school football since the Noxie standard has been introduced. I mean, you went from a lot of very serious head and neck injuries in, in high school and college football in the late 60s, say, until, you know, there's there's very, very few nowadays. Yeah, well, kudos to Noxie. I think we, got, we need to get some of that information out, let people know that that standard is still, is still a relevant standard. Um, spe speaking of standards uh, and the Noxie drop test and, and those types and, and the rankings and stuff, let's I want to take a look specifically at, at your helmet, uh, and today we're, you were kind enough, I believe it was, how long ago was the Speed Flex first introduced? Was that three, four years ago? Oh, yeah. It, it, started, it started to find its way onto the field in, during the 2014 playing season. Okay. Um, if I remember correctly, when we first, you, you sent us um, a Speed Flex, um, and at the time that we first got the helmet, I don't think it was widely available. Um, but by the time we did the review, we actually had some players in that helmet. Uh, and then it was about uh, how long after that before the Precision Fit was actually introduced? Uh, the Precision Fit found was two years ago two uh, years first ago. found its way onto the field. Okay, and now we're here uh, to talk not only about some of these uh, sports emergency care issues, but specifically about your Diamond Fit or your your Precision Diamond um, technology. So. 
you would describe this as kind of a speed flex platform. So you have the speed flex helmet, you have the, the speed flex precision fit, and you have the speed flex precision diamond. So uh, you, you talk about that as kind of a platform. So what I wanted to do was actually, you were kind enough again um, to send us another helmet, the, the diamond fit, which we are in the process of completing our review for. Uh, but this is, this is your speed flex precision fit. And I'm wondering, since this is a platform that has multiple um, iterations or, or multiple models or versions, if you will, um, but it's consistent with the helmet shell. The helmet shell is a consistency across this platform, correct? Yes. And since you haven't completed your review yet, I'm hopeful that since we're talking about this, it'll be generally positive. Oh, I'm, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely sure it will be. We'll, we'll wait and see, but I have no, uh, I, I have no reservation. I mean, the, the part of the, the review that has been completed suggests that we're not going to see anything different than what we have seen in the Speed Flex review we did. We did a pretty comprehensive review of both the Flex and the Precision Fit. I can't imagine, um, you know, just in my own experience, I can't imagine that this is going to come up uh, significantly different, but sure. we'll see. So it, it, could you just give us a little, give us a little insight, no pun intended, uh, give us a little insight into the helmet shell, the speed flex shell itself. What, what are the design features of it and why does it look the way that it does? Well, when we, when we were developing the helmet that would become the Speedflex, uh, our engineers found that adding uh, selectively engineered flexibility into the shell kind of improved its impact response in certain places. So, you know, where, where it ended up landing was in this area in the front of the shell. Uh, you know, we found that adding this selective uh, engineered flex point in the front of the shell, uh, shell improved our impact response in that area. So that's why you see that flex panel in the front of the shell right there. Um, it, it, it didn't seem to have as positive of, positive of an effect at other places in the shell, so we chose not to include it in other places, but in the front, um, you know, maybe because of the rigidity of the face guard and the way the front pads are designed, it, it really seemed to offer a benefit there, so that's why we see it. Um, the Speedflex was also the first, um, uh, uh, second platform, but the first widely popular platform that had all points quick release face guard, uh, which mm -hmm. is something that you know, we designed many years ago, but in consultation with first responders and athletic trainers, uh, because, you know, we know what you have to do on the field and what your protocols are. So we wanted to make it as easy as possible to remove the face guard as quickly as possible. So uh, we had this all points quick release face mask system. Um, you know, the Speedflex also has this unique new chin strap system. Uh, it actually grew out of some focus groups we were doing with a couple of NFL players during the development process where one of them just kind of said off, you know, off the cuff, you know, I, I think it's weird that the helmet I'm wearing today has the same chin strap on it as the one that I was issued when I was in eighth grade. So, you know, we had, we had had some of these. You don't these, want to hear that. I, I want to hear some modernization, <laughs> some evolution, right? Well, yeah, but, I mean, all, all helmets, whether it was ours or others, kind of used the same buckle and snap chin strap system. So, uh, you know, we developed, uh, and we, we had had some of these concepts in the works at the time, and we just accelerated it based on that comment. But these, uh, you know, ratchet lock chin strap system uh, that we've included in the Speed Flex is, is kind of a new take on the helmet retention. Uh, that you know lets the player adjust it more readily for themselves. Uh, I, 
just uh, as, as I'm looking here at the helmet, I'm, I'm reminded that if you look at most other helmets, um, they have, they have an attachment systems up here. So you have your loop strap fasteners up here, two up here and two on the side. And I'm just, I'm reminded uh, that you don't have those up here. And that throws me back to the 360, the Rodell 360. Uh, and I think that was the first helmet you guys introduced with um, no attachment systems on the top or the attachment systems on the side, such as here. Uh, and I think if I remember correctly, the idea there was that the helmet show and the face mask was designed so that on impact, it was the, the force of the impact was sent 360 degrees around the helmet shell and therefore no one particular area of the, of the head was exposed. Is, well, it, is that true? Is that the it, gist of it? In a, in, a, in a manner of speaking, I mean, what, what it does is we found that when you have these two points, these attachment points uh, at the front of the face mask, when blows were taken to the face mask or the front of the helmet, yeah. um, you know, those impacts were transferred very rapidly through the face guard shell and, and front padding components of the helmet to the wearer's head, um, introducing this flexible face guard technology where the, the attachments of the face guard were moved to the side. When you strike the face guard, it allows the face guard to flex much more now. Um, and you can scrub off a lot of impact energy by flexing a steel or a stainless steel face guard even a little bit um, and do yourself a lot of good in the impact scenario. Oh. Okay, uh, I I knew that was a component of it, and I just like like I said, it threw me back to the to the three sixty, which I think was the predecessor to the speed flex, oh, right? Oh, the three sixty had you know it was short lived in the marketplace, yeah. but it had a lot of foundational technologies in it that you see in the speed flex platform now. Yeah, um, speaking of t two things that that come up in in your description there, one is the chin strap. You mentioned the chin strap a couple of different times, and I've mentioned to you more than once that I felt the the zipper noise made by the chin strap, which I think you, I don't know if we were able to get that. Were you able to get that as far as the, the noise? That that zipping noise of the chin strap uh, with the first speed flex before you changed it. Uh, I, I've come to know that as an iconic sound in in football with athletes getting ready to leave the sideline, getting ready to go into the game. You hear all the zipping up of the, mm -hmm. of the chin straps. And I've, uh, when I when I found out or when I heard rumor that you were changing the chin strap design, that was one of my biggest fears is that you were going to get rid of that. When I pulled the the sample that you sent us out, I thought, oh no, they they changed the chin strap; it's not there anymore. But as soon as I pulled it and it made that noise, I was I was relieved. I, I think uh, well, I, I still like it. So well, out of out of respect for your comments, we tried to keep the zipper noise Very good. As, as part of the chin <laughs> I, strap system. Um, it, it actually has a function uh, allowing the cam uh, the cam and the cam lock system to hold onto the chin strap. So it's functional as well as something that you can hear. Yeah, well, uh, I'm I'm going to go with you just went because I wanted to have it in there. So I'll I'll take credit. You for were that. yes, you were the missionary in right, that area. Good, good. All right, let's go back to the. Uh, face mask for a minute because um, when we do our reviews uh, we do our reviews from the standpoint of we want to know how this helmet any other helmet any other product that we do a review for our reviews are centered on what or how does this piece of equipment either enhance our ability to provide critical care during an injury scenario uh, or how does it limit or restrict our ability to perform critical care tasks during uh, injury management? So 
one thing that we found over the multiple reviews we've done of various football helmets is that uh, for the most part, modern football helmet designs uh, all lend themselves to the same barriers, if you will, to completing uh, critical care tasks. In particular, with a football helmet, uh, the face mask um, presents a barrier to providing airway management. Historically, we've, we've thought about removing the face mask. Um, and you have your four-point attachment system with a quick release system um, that helps us do that. And it's always been my feeling, uh, even before these modern attachment systems, it's always been my feeling that face mask removal was more of a uh, familiarity issue than it was a design issue. So that uh, sports medicine people or, or medical professionals um, needed to spend a little more time becoming familiar with face mask removal and practicing the techniques of face mask removal. Um, so w what are your thoughts on, on face mask removal in terms of um, using face mask removal versus maybe just removing the helmet? Because uh, kind of the second thought um, I had was that, you know, more recently with some of the medical teams we've worked with, there's a trend where medical teams that have an athlete that's in respiratory distress are just defaulting to removing the hat and not worrying about the face mask because these helmets, using proper safe handling and protocols, these helmets come off relatively easy. So what are your thoughts and, and maybe do you design for easy removal of the helmet or what are your thoughts on face mask removal versus helmet removal in this modern technology revolution of helmets? Well, I mean, my thoughts, our thoughts are that you know, you should follow the, your protocol and your best practices on the field. You know, do what you think is the right thing to do situationally. Um, we're just trying to give you the tools uh, to do your job and do your job the best you can. Um, if it's a situation where the removing the face mask is the right thing to do, you know, we've we developed the quick release face guard system for that reason. Um, you know, it wasn't to make face guards easier to put on. It was to make them so that you could quickly <laughs> right. take them off in, yeah. the, in a situation that you needed to. Um, so, you know, we're trying to give you the tools to do your job as best you can and not be, you know, not design things into the helmet that obstructs that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and just to be clear, too, the, the comment that I made about helmet removal versus face mask, because I know that's going to get uh, that that is a point that could be taken the wrong way. Um, my point there was that uh, some teams are electing that if, they're, if their athlete is already in respiratory distress, using proper safe handling protocols, those helmets can be taken off, can be taken off safely and give you access to the airway and airway management. Mm -hmm. But there isn't any research at the moment that I'm aware of. There might be something in the pipeline, I don't know, but um, I suspect there might be. But um, there is no current research to suggest that we go about removing the hat as an initial protocol. And I think your point is one that should be taken by most medical professionals, and that is when dealing with a critically injured athlete, we have two ways of getting to that athlete's airway. One is to remove the face mask, and another is to remove the helmet, leaving the face mask in place, just removing the hat. And <clears throat> which protocol the medical staff decides is most appropriate depends on the scenario they find themselves in. So to suggest that one protocol is always appropriate uh, would not be appropriate. So uh, I just wanted to make that clear because I know that'll be a point of contention um, in, in any discussion that comes up regarding equipment removal. Always is. It's a hot topic. Um, we we uh, talked a little bit about the revolution. 
uh, helmet. And you have mentioned a couple of times in our conversation so far um, about incorporating or including medical professionals or first responders and their needs in the design process. Um, now, initially, um, a lot of us in the medical community and the first responder community were maybe a little critical back with the release of the Revolution helmet and the attachment system that held the face mask on. I think not only was the helmet shell a revolution, but so was the attachment system. Um, and that attachment system basically made it very, very difficult to get the face mask off. Now, it didn't take you long to, to change that attachment system uh, to make it a little bit easier to cut those fasteners off. And then even shortly thereafter, a complete redesign of, of the attachment system. So speak a little bit about the evolution of that attachment system and, and the relationship that it helped or, or um, with medical professionals that went along in that process. Uh, sure. When we launched the revolution, uh, you're right. The new face guard attachment system, while it was easy to take off, all you had to do was back it out with an electric screwdriver. Um, it wasn't. It, it it didn't make itself easy to remove using traditional cutting devices that were used at the time. Um, and that's actually how I was introduced to you and to to Dr. Eric Schwartz up at the University of New Hampshire at the time. Um, was through concerns about how to remove uh, the revolution in an emergency situation on the field. Um, but it was, a, it was an opportunity for Riddell to get reintroduced, I guess, at the time uh, to the athletic training community, community to first responders, um, and, you know, and, and understand just how much we needed to take into consideration your needs and the needs of all the constituents that come into contact with the football helmet and have to have to work with it. Um, professionally or it, it, by playing the game, you know, whether it's players or coaches or parents or athletic directors, equipment managers have, you know, their own needs, um, you know, but first responders have protocol that they need to follow on the field as well. Um, so, yeah, we, like you said, we quickly redesigned the attachment system to make it so uh, it could be cut off using a cutting device. Um, but that kind of led to the development of the quick release system too. I mean, because we realized, you know, how important that aspect of the game was and that aspect of equipment design was. Um, we wanted to design our helmets, you know, for everybody that was going to be using them. So how then, uh, it, would you say that you, you said that that was an opportunity for you to reconnect uh, with the athletic training community and with the medical community? How is that then parlayed or uh, resulted in a change in how you address uh, the issues for medical personnel now? Do you, do you consult with medical professionals uh, in the design process? Uh, we do. We, we, I mean, we're active with the National Athletic Trainers Association. Um, I mean, I'm, we're doing things like this mm -hmm. with Sports Medicine Concepts and Skull Sessions podcast. Um, but it's also something that it's now become top of mind in our design process, you know, as we design football helmet features or new platforms, um, you know, we, we think about how first responders are going to have to use this on the field or, or remove it on the field and make sure that we consider that when we're, we're designing features for the helmet. Um, you know, and the shoulder pads too. I mean, we have our, our ripcord shoulder pad technology is, you know, similarly designed to allow access to other parts of the body, not, not necessarily the airway. Um, but it's something that we've thought about 
you know, with all of our equipment is to make it as, you know, as least obstructive as it can be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the, the point everyone has to keep in mind, I think, is when you have an equipment laden athlete, be it football, be it hockey, be it lacrosse, whatever, mm-hmm. if you have an equipment laden athlete, the nature of protective equipment is to present a barrier. Um, and the, the challenge that you guys have, and I think it sounds like you take seriously to meet that challenge, is uh, how do we get the most protection for the athlete and create the least barrier for medical professionals to have to overcome when managing a critically injured athlete in that equipment? So I, I think that's, that's, that's important um, in, in the consideration of the development of that. And I think it's also important for um our constituents to understand that you take that into consideration because I, I think uh, the attachment system with the revolution kind of started people thinking, hey, wait, you know, these guys don't care about anything except coming out with the latest, greatest helmet and they're not giving any thought to what our needs are or what our concerns are. So, I, you know, that's, it's important to get that across, that it's a, a significant part of the design process for you. Yeah, and I hope that's, you know, that's not the case and, and it, it certainly is demonstrated in in the innovations we've made in the last I think 15 years with with respect to face guard removal but you know you have to remember that we go to great lengths to design features to both protect the athlete but to keep the helmet on players heads right. too <laughs> yeah. sometimes that that works counter to removing it uh, but but we do our best well there's a lot of moving parts you know, you're, you're trying to keep a piece of equipment on to protect the athlete and we're trying to get it off to protect the athlete, so you know, there's a lot of a lot of things. I, I wouldn't. Um, I think I'd rather design a bridge. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they don't need to be. They don't need to be mutually exclusive. It yeah. just has to be thought through in an engineering sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a good thing that there are engineers that can do that. I'll just worry about taking it off. And as you said, the the, the quick release was designed to take off, and <laughs> that's exactly what we find when we do our in two minutes or less training is that. I say, I say all the time, I'm glad I don't have to put these back on. It's just my job to take them off. <laughs> so, uh, that, yeah. But um, getting back to the, the speed flex design uh, in, in general, you identified this region. Uh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that region because I remember when we first got our first eight uh, helmets, speed flex helmets on our, on our football team, I actually made a point to go up to the school and talk to those eight athletes and, and tell them, hey, this is not a bumper. This is not an absorption pad that makes it okay for you to use this as a target and to use this point as the initial point of contact. Because if you think about it, uh, this is a great place, right? You've identified this as a great place um, to help absorb an impact, and right? To help absorb some of those impact forces. And you, you identified this as being a better spot than other areas that you would test it on the helmet. Um, so from a concussion or a head protection standpoint, that's a great place for it. From a cervical spine injury standpoint, that's a terrible place to put anything that outline that helps identify that area of the helmet because this is the area of the helmet that is most often associated with um, an axial load mechanism. So I, I took great pains to go up and tell these kids, hey, this is not Riddell's way of saying this is w- where you should make contact. Um, so, but that kind of brings up my, my next question is, okay, so we have a lot of design features that are all head protection, um, but what about the cervical spine? Is the cervical spine a component of your design uh, or is that more 
so much more of a relationship of using your head in a down in a head down position that there's not really much we can expect from a football helmet in that regard. I, I you know I think from a pat in a passive way there's not much if anything a helmet can do to protect the cervical spine I mean, it's been well established the mm-hmm. you know the buckling kind of burst fracture uh, that happens that you know is is not something that the helmet can protect from um, you know it kind of goes to athlete training and using proper technique and not reflexively putting your head down or on purpose putting your head down um, you know there's products that that Riddell that Riddell markets, uh, you referenced insight in, in not so intentional, intentional pun earlier. Uh, (laughs) that's a, an impact sensing and reporting technology, uh, that we've kind of tried to trans, uh, transform into a coaching tool to understand, uh, how, how often, where players are hitting with their head or being struck on their head. Um, and if, you know, you can identify a player that is striking with the crown of their helmet more so than his peers or more so than a national norm, um, you know, I think that's a training opportunity for the player because, you know, first of all, you're probably not a very good football player if your head's down and you're striking with the crown of your helmet all the time. That's really true. But it's also, you know, it puts you at increased risk of more serious injury. And I think it's an opportunity to train the player to not do that. Yeah, I, I think one thing especially younger athletes need to understand is that you know rules regarding spearing and using your head as the initial point of contact uh, I, I are not created to protect the person that you're running into they're, right. they're made to protect you you know the the individual that is actually using their head to ram or, or to spear those rules are in place to protect that particular athlete not the person that you're running into yeah there's a there's a reason that the warnings on football helmets warn against butt ramming or spearing uh, because it's not it's not necessarily to protect your opponent it's because those are the types of things that can lead to serious injuries to you yeah so we we could say then that you know um if you want to if you really want to get as much protection uh as you can from any given helmet that a critical part of that is is not using your head to initiate contact now there's there's always going to be contact it's a mm-hmm. collision sport so you know there are going to be those uh those plays where you can't keep your head out of contact you're you're just not capable of doing that and i think that's where the protection uh technology that's in the helmet comes into play but i think what's getting lost uh in in some of this maybe is we're relying on this helmet technology to cover up some of the mistakes we're making in technique and that maybe i i do believe we do a good job actually of getting that information out. But I think especially younger athletes need to realize that uh, you as a designer, me as an athletic trainer, I'm really part of my uh, help for you and protecting you from getting injured is my understanding that you're not gonna use your head as a a point of contact, uh, you know, either consciously or subconsciously. Right, and I, I, you know, I, I think the conversation is changing a little bit. I think, you know, the the notion of you know not using your helmet as a weapon or your head as a weapon you know keeping your head out of you know out of harm's way um, reducing overall head impact exposure uh, you know is becoming a more important part of the conversation and I think that takes football to a better place in the yeah, future it, it does it absolutely does because you know um, I, I saw something on TV 
it was it was in a restaurant on a TV in a restaurant, so I had to read the subtitles, uh, so I couldn't really hear what they were saying. But you know, the the gist of of this was that we like football and we like hockey and we like lacrosse and we like these collision sports because they're they're collision sports. They're violent, and there's a part of the sport that uh, we like because of the violence. Um, so, but you, I think you can take, uh, you can take injury out of the game, uh, or, or at least reduce the, the incidence of injury and still not change the game. You know, and I think a lot of people think that some of these rule changes that we're making take away from the game. And I'm, I'm, you know, as, as a healthcare professional and, and as someone that's been involved in a worst case scenario on field, that's not part of the game. You know, getting an injury that changes you for the rest of your life that's not part of the game this this is a game that uh, kids will play for four years in high school if they're get, if they get lucky they'll play for another four in college there's eight years of your life you know if you get lucky what the average NFL player lasts four and a half years if that yeah so so you're you're what 12 15 years out of your entire life uh, you're playing this game and to to have a devastating injury as a result of playing a game, I, that's not part of it. So if, if there are things that we can do to reduce the, the likelihood of that, I don't think that takes away from the game. No, and I think, you know, football hasn't been a static sport from a, from a rules or playing style standpoint since the beginning of the game. It, it has evolved over time, um, and it has is, is evolved to become safer. I mean, it's safer today than it's ever been before to play football, and I think you know, things will change to continue to move it in that direction. Uh, that, that's, that's an interesting point. So let's, let's look at that a minute because um, we, we hear all these statistics about how um, kids, uh, parents aren't letting their kids play football anymore and nationally the, the number of kids playing football is, is dropping dramatically and, uh, and some make the assumption that it's due to uh, this, this perceived violent risk associated with football and um, but I heard, um, I heard I heard a physician one time at a, at a conference. I was listening to a, a conference, and this, this physician said um, it's actually statistically more uh, harm, or, or there's a greater chance that your son is going to get hurt driving to football practice than getting hurt playing football. So, so getting mm-hmm. to and from practice is more dangerous than playing the game of football. And I, I, I think that's that's getting lost in all in all of this talk about how you know how violent the game of football is and, and mm-hmm. I, I think it, I think that's getting lost is that statistically speaking um, yes you can you can get hurt playing football maybe at a greater rate maybe the injury rates are higher than other sports maybe not um, but statistically speaking uh, it's still more dangerous for you to be out driving down to get some ice cream after practice or something like that yeah, I can think of a lot more dangerous things a teenager could be doing on a Friday night than being on a football and field. Playing football, yeah. Uh, and and when you think about all the positive things that the game brings, um, yeah, I, I I I hope that uh, that that trend reverses itself because I, I you know and not just football, athletics in general, right? Um, any any sport, the positives of being associated with a team and playing a sport and competitive sports and athletics and, and all that goes along with it. I would, I would hate to think that, um, pro, you know, the, the, those types of things propagated uh, when they're just statistically, they just don't hold out. 
Yeah, I think you know you can you can point to football, but I, team sports in general have a have seen a participation decline, um, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. You know, there, you can point to a number of different reasons, um, but you think of all the positive things that come out of playing team sports, playing football. You know, whether it's you know teamwork, perseverance, right, physical exactly. conditioning. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's just so many good life lessons that come out of it. Um, you know, you'd like to see more people doing it. Yeah, when, when you think of think of all those all, all those kids that get all that positive uh, benefit from being a part of athletics, and then let's let's take a look at reality. Less than one in one hundred thousand will suffer any kind of a catastrophic injury playing organized athletics. So the injury rate is is extremely low. Yeah, yes, they do happen. And they happen regularly, annually across the country. But statistically speaking, um, you know the benefits certainly outweigh outweigh the risks. That's that's my take on it. Anyway. If you want my opinion, yeah, I don't yeah. think you asked me, but that's that's <laughs> my opinion. Um, yeah, so we kind of got off on a little tangent there, but you know, I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of organized athletics. I so that, I think that's important to bring across. Um. Okay, so let, let's talk a little bit, you know, we've alluded to this innovation and all that all, all the time uh, throughout, throughout the whole morning. Um, one of the things I wanted to get at was the pace of innovation. Um, it seems like helmet manufacturers are coming out with a new design almost annually. Every year there's a new helmet on the market. Every year we hear about new helmet designs. Um, and with that pace of innovation, I think a lot of medical professionals get a little anxious because we oftentimes find out about a new design that's on, being used on our team the day that camp opens up. And we've never, we haven't had an opportunity to see the helmet, to learn about its features, to practice techniques that we might have to, to brush up on to, to manage that in, a, in an emergency situation. So what, what would you say to medical professionals? How would you suggest they stay abreast of the innovation? Well, there's there's a lot of ways that you can go about this, and and one thing to remember about Riddell is we are a national grassroots football organization. We have representatives spread across the United States and Canada um, that are there to call on and to be consultants to, you know, your football programs in in your regions or your localities. Um, so those people are available to you, um, you know, to communicate with to understand what's new and what's coming out. Uh, but another way you could look at it is, you know, if, if you know, you show up at the beginning of August and, um, you know, there, there's new football helmets in your program. Those didn't just materialize out of thin air. Those have been uh, in the distribution pipeline for six months at least before that. And there's probably information about them. There's, if, you, if it's a Riddell helmet, there's certainly information about it available on Riddell's website. Um, so you could go look at and review the design ahead of time. Um, but I would also say, you know, when you first show up, uh, when football practice starts, you know, ask your coach if he has any new helmet models and familiarize yourself with them ahead of time so that it's not a surprise um, if you have to interact with them on the field. So, so you guys, you, you, you feel like you present enough information about new technologies that's coming out and, and maybe we have to be a little more proactive in seeking that information out. Uh, and, and, you know, to be honest with you, I, I agree with you there. I, we, we should show up and, and take a look. 
uh, on the first day of practice or maybe like, you know, maybe leading up to practice, just go in and make that, you know, ask that question? Well, I think the communication works both ways, too. I mean, uh, you know, we, we need to make it available, which which I think we do. Um, but, you know, anybody who comes in contact with the football helmet, um, you know, needs to seek it out a little bit as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100% on that. Are, are there any what else might you suggest? So, so we spent a lot of time talking about uh, the technology, your efforts to design protection into your helmets and, and your desire to be innovative in those types of things. What, what is it that you think you could, if you threw the ball back in my court as an athletic trainer, what is it that I can do um, to take advantage of, of the design that you have, but also are, are there protocols, are there efforts, are there things that we as medical professionals can be doing um, to help with the protection as well, to help get the most out of out of that protection. Well, uh, you know, I mean, one thing I can say is, you know, practice. Um, you know, we Riddell has an equipment removal kit that we make available uh, for first responders, for athletic trainers to practice with, so that you know, when a situation arises on the field, this isn't the first time that you're having to deal with it. Like you know, you know how it goes removing the equipment, what needs to be done, you know what, you know what what subtleties and distinctions need to be made when you're doing it. So, um, you know, I think that'll be my my. My main point of advice is just practice doing it. Yeah, just become familiar. I, I, I agree. I think more than anything else, when when we do the training, uh, the in two minutes or less training, and it's it's always interesting to see that uh, the first one or two run-throughs of protocol, safe handling protocol, equipment removal, uh, whatever it is, when when we are, when we're working with teams with medical teams and doing that, it's it's really interesting to see how. The first time through, it's usually pretty rough. And you, you can have some veteran medical professionals uh, going through things for the first time in a formal, you know, in a, a more formal uh, setting. And and it's interesting to see how it's pretty rough on the first, you know, the first go around. It's kind of like, wow, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are coming up there that are making problems for us that we didn't really perceive. But it doesn't take long. It really doesn't take long for that medical team to come together and within an hour of practicing, they've got things down and it's running smooth. So I, I would agree 100% that uh, from our perspective and coming from my frame of reference as being one of those uh, athletic trainers or first responders, if you will, that it's, it's absolutely, it's a practice issue more than anything else. Um, when we go through these different reviews and stuff like that, that, at the end of the day, that's always my ultimate recommendation is just become familiar and practice the safe handling uh, maneuvers and practices and skills and those types of things will go a long way uh, in, in doing that. By the way, you did, you were uh, kind enough. You, you send us a lot of stuff, so I, I appreciate that very much. So you, you keep us busy as far, as far as the review process goes. Um, and you did actually send us your equipment training kit. So if you want to give us a little idea what we're looking at here well uh, this was really cool mm -hmm. i thought you can actually see the inside of the of the helmet so yeah i, I thought I mean, that we, was pretty neat. we did a couple of different things here one one was we provided a clear shell football helmet so you can have you know you get more visibility into what's going on you know with the player's head inside the helmet shell while you're removing it um, you can see what's making contact and and what might be moving that you don't want to move 
Um, you know, we provide, this is a speed platform, which requires you to use both the quick release and either a screwdriver yeah. or cutting tool at the top, kind of gives you a little bit worst case scenario compared to uh, the speed flex with the all point quick release. And then we've included, we included a bunch of replacement hardware so that you can, you know, cut straps and have replacements. Um, and we also included a, uh, a ripcord shoulder pad demo model so you can practice cutting the ripcord pulling it out and removing the uh, the shoulder pads from the player as well and there's some uh, replacement um, cords in the in the training kit as well but you know these being the two primary pieces of equipment that you might be called on to remove to gain access to the player on the field um, you know we thought we'd you know kind of make it easy to put together a kit that you could use yeah. to practice yeah, every, everything you would need to actually practice yeah very good okay uh, and that I like the the rip cords. The rip cord system, I think, is um, we we use that. Not, not to, um, Hopefully, you don't use it much. No, 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 no. <laughs> we we use that as the as the primary shoulder pad that mm -hmm. we use in our training. All of our uh, simulators and stuff have the rip cord shoulder pads, and it's it's not because it's Riddell or mm -hmm. you know because you gave them to us or anything, but um, uh, it's it's because they're they're actually very easy to take off and put back on, and it allows us to practice. Going back to the practice issue, the, the reason that we use the ripcord actually is because uh, that practicing on the ripcord gives us the ability to practice on just about any kind of design that we might come across in a shoulder pad. So if it's a ripcord shoulder pad, we can practice that. If it's a lace-up shoulder pad, we can practice accessing the chest, mm -hmm. cutting the chins, uh, cutting the strap, the laces. Um, if it's one that uses a plastic breastplate, um, we can we can practice with that as well. So it just um, going back to the practice effect, if you will, practicing as many different skills prior to having to use those skills is, is just a good idea. So um, to wrap things up a little bit, um, give me give me some idea of where you think helmet technology is going and where is head protection going where where are we if you give me a summary of where we are now and maybe where we're going to find ourselves in a couple of years down the road well to summarize where we are now i mean you have helmet technology that's based on scans of players heads uh, Riddell's precision platform whether that's the speedflex precision or precision diamond uh, platform, you know, that's a technology that people probably wouldn't have thought of even five years ago. Yeah. A, a helmet that is built based on a scan of the surface of your head that is personalized to your to the fit of your head. Every lump, every bump, every asymmetry, because no two people's heads, you know, are alike in size or shape. They're kind of like footprint or uh, fingerprints. Um, you know, so that technology is available. Um, we've recently introduced a helmet where we actually print the internal system. Uh, it's called Diamond Technology, and it uses an additive manufacturing uh, technology, 3D printing. So we can 3D print a liner that matches the surface of your head. Um, you know, we've, we've had impact sensors and transmitting devices in helmets for a long time, yeah. but, uh, but I think that technology is probably where you know, the real cornerstone of the, of the future of helmets is. Uh, I think five to seven years from now, it'll be difficult to purchase a football helmet that doesn't have some sort of impact sensing and transmitting technology in it. Um, the idea not being to 
diagnose concussions right. on the field because <laughs> yeah. that, that's such a that's such a unique phenomenon that's so specific to whatever the individual impact is or player is that I, I think it's it's just not feasible or tenable to do that but but what we can do is let you understand the head impact exposure levels that players are seeing the types of impacts they're seeing the levels of of impact that they're seeing where those impacts are coming from and where they're being struck um, and you know give coaches the opportunity to reduce the overall head impact exposure to the athlete and you know that's that's something that really I think takes the game to a better place yeah I, I agree and, and we have at, at the school I'm at we have the insight in uh, a number of our helmets quite a few of our helmets now more and more every year uh, and and that's an important point um, that even even if five years down the road we are in a situation where all helmets have some sort of a monitoring system in them it's just that it's a monitoring system it's it's not a diagnostic tool no uh, much like the SCAT-5 that we use for, mm -hmm. for sideline assessment, um, much like uh, you know all of the other different assessment batteries that we have, no one of those, uh, you'll, you'll, you won't find anyone that will profess any of those to be the one and only. It's, it, it's a bunch of chips and you, uh, it's another chip, it's another tool that you use um, in, in your overall diagnose, diagnosis. So it's, mm -hmm. it's another tool, it's another bit of information that uh, can help you make the right decision. Uh, but it's, it, it's important to note that that's not, you know, and it's not your intention. It's not your intention for the insight to be the one diagnostic tool that replaces everything else. But no, it's a, it's a tool to drive behavior is what it is. Uh, whether that's player behavior, coaching behavior, um, you know, the way coaches construct their practice plans, because I think, you know, some of the things we're seeing are if you, if you run certain drills during certain times during practice, you see elevated head impact exposure versus running them later in practice, say. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things you can learn when we, you know, do the analytics, mine the data on this that I think can inform, you know, better practices in football going forward. Agreed. Very much agreed. Uh, that, uh, Thad, that, uh, great stuff. Uh, I, I appreciate you very much. Uh, I appreciate your time and the fact that you came from Chicago to visit with us. Um, and uh, I, I can't, it's an honor that, that you came. It really is. Uh, we've known each other for a while. And as I said, this is a little bit of a different setting for us to be in uh, together. But uh, I'm honored that, that you felt that it was, that, that this was a good enough opportunity for you to take time out of, out of your schedule to be here. Well, I appreciate the invitation. Uh, Riddell appreciates the invitation. It's a beautiful time of year in yeah. upstate New York. Well, next, so. next time we come down, we'll have to come up with some other, and then we'll do, like, uh, the, the, the neck of the woods we're in is <clears throat> well-known for wine tasting. Um, but it, the, the thing that's grown huge around here is microbrews mm -hmm. and also uh, cider, uh, hard cider. Well, I've, I've been enjoying that the whole time yeah. we've been talking here. <laughs> yeah. It would have, the conversation would have gone a little differently, I think, if that was hard cider. I know on my part it would have, anyway. Well, look, uh, until next time, uh, I appreciate it. And I believe the next time will probably be February, right, out at the winter meeting. That's right, the combine. Yeah. I don't. Do you, uh, do you go to the Eastern Athletic Trainers Association meeting or anything like that? Uh, not normally. Somebody from Riddell may be there. Yeah. Okay, so you and I will probably run into each other again at the winter meeting. So I look forward to seeing you again. Thanks, that. You too. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to the Skull Sessions podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next installment of Skull Sessions. Also, look for Skull Sessions on your favorite podcast app.